tomorrow I'll be giving a speech and the speech will be about five minutes long. It'll be concerning this chart that you can see here on the screen. And one of the things that I'll be doing is in giving this speech is it's called our chart of the God speech. And so, so we're assigned this assignment, I guess you could say that's why it's an assignment is because it's assigned to make this chart that I made here. It's just in my own handwriting. And in, so it's not exactly all that professional or anything, but to make this chart and then give a five minute speech about it. So I thought that this would be kind of my rough draft on that speech. Um, this is what I tend to be doing with some of this stuff is I've made rough draft videos on my thoughts. I've made rough draft videos on how I want to, you know, different thoughts that I have about something that I'm going to lead a discussion about or something. So this is for school, obviously. And, uh, so I thought this would be a rough draft video on the speech that I'm going to give. Now, this video will probably be about 10 to 15 minutes long. Obviously, if you're watching it now, you know how long it is. Um, I don't know how long it's going to be, but the speech is only supposed to be five minutes. But that's because I'm trying to lay out some of these thoughts, and then I'll pick it apart and see where exactly I am going or what things exactly I want to mention. So as you can see, my chart begins with the three beginning gods of the universe, Eros, Earth or Gaia, and the chasm. Eros is an interesting god because it's not Eros Cupid, it's Eros Meta-Eros, divine Meta-Eros, the force which allows all the other gods to procreate throughout and to make this make the world. That's why Hesiod's book that is called The Theogony, it's a genealogy and it's also the beginning of the universe. You have the chasm here and the chasm gives birth to Erobus or darkness and night. And darkness and night are separated from one another, which is quite interesting. Darkness as children is not mentioned, but nights are, and those include deceit and doom, fate and death and misery and so on and so forth. It's kind of a very philosophical understanding of what night is. It shows you how, I guess, philosophically dark the Greeks were in their thinking. But from earth also comes heaven, and with heaven comes the sea, and with the sea comes the mountains, and with the birth of heaven, Hesiod describes it as almost there needed to be equality with earth. Earth wanted something equal to herself, and so heaven was born. Earth then mates with her son, heaven, to create the cyclopses, the monsters, and the twelve titans. The twelve titans are, as you can see, are listed below on my chart here. And the two titans who get the most attention and the one who gets the most attention is Kronos, but also his wife and sister Rhea. Out of the, I guess the next most important titan would probably be Iapetus, Iapetes, because he gives birth to Atlas, who Zeus curses to hold the sh the world on his shoulders, and Prometheus, who plays a pivotal role in the development and establishment of mankind and 
Epimetheus, who is Prometheus' twin, and who also plays a pivotal role in those things. And obviously, you can see the genealogies there. So you have Hermes, who supposedly comes from being a son of Zeus, and Aphrodite, who also supposedly perhaps comes from being a son of Zeus. But we'll get into that in just a minute. The next most important are these ones on the left side of the diagram, Cryos and Tethi. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Just a second. My bad. That's Koos and Phoebe. Sometimes uh, Koos is spelled C-O-E-U-S. So they give birth to Leto and Zeus marries or procreates with Leto later on to create Apollo and Artemis or Artemis. Um, I'm pretty sure you pronounce it Artemis though. And so here's the genealogy. Now what's interesting about this chart, as you can see, is I didn't exactly follow all the genealogical strands that Hesiod mentions in the Theogony. Hesiod goes on long tangents about, you know, the children of the sea and then the children of the sea's children. And there's long discussions on that. I instead chose to focus on those titans and what eventually became the Olympians, which included Zeus, Hera, Hades, Hestia, Poseidon, um, Apollo, Artemis, Hephaestus, Ares, Aphrodite, and Hermes. These were the 12 Olympians who dwelt on Mount Olympus. And I thought that these were the most interesting of the gods because they're the ones which the Greeks worship. Now, you might notice that Zeus's name comes up more than any other. The only other name in this chart which is repeated is Earth. And that's because the Greeks became very Zeus-centric. As you can see, or as you will know, if you are familiar with Greek mythology, Aphrodite was not always said to be the son of of Zeus. Aphrodite sometimes would come out of the sea, was birthed out of the sea. Hephaestus is sometimes said to be the son of only Hera. But as time progressed, and as the Greeks became more Zeus-centric, these gods and goddesses became more closely related with Zeus, hence Aphrodite becoming the son, or the daughter, rather, of Zeus, and Hephaestus becoming the son of Zeus instead of only Hera, or instead of Aphrodite only coming out of the sea. Zeus, although he opposes Atlas, marries his Atlas's daughter, and although Zeus has no immediate connections with any of Prometheus's descendants, he is very well connected with both of Prometheus's brothers. Zeus is connected and is the youngest son of Cronos, and Cronos is the youngest son of Earth and Heaven. In Greek mythology, you have a very revolutionary type strand. There's not a peaceful creation. It's very chaotic. It's very violent. The earth and 
heaven perhaps birth things more or less smoothly. But heaven does not like most of his children, if any at all, and so I guess he doesn't like any of them. That would be the better way to think about it. And so Kronos is the one who has to free his siblings and everything else from the reign of Uranus. And But Kronos doesn't learn his lesson, and so he has to be overtaken by Zeus. And so you have two revolutions, and both of the revolutions are led by the youngest of the siblings, which basically means that the that it's an ultra-revolution. It's a revolution of the family dynamics. Now, this is interesting to think about, especially in the context of the Bible, because if you posit that Yahweh is the one and only God, and that these other religions are offshoots of Yahweh's religion, then it makes sense why the Greeks would be so revolutionary, because they had their own ideas. They were a revolutionary type people. After all, the Greeks were the ones who had the city-states. The Greeks were the ones who allowed men to think for themselves. The Greeks were very interesting people, and so their gods are also very interesting and also very rebellious and very revolutionary. So, just as the Greeks had a this revolutionary and Zeus-like understanding of the universe. So too, Christians should have a godlike and peaceful understanding of the universe. This gets into the questions of the difference between revolution and reform, because in the idea of revolution, you have the idea of the overthrowing of something for something new. In the idea of reform, you have an idea which implies form and the return to that form. Christianity is perhaps revolutionary, but it's reformational. It's restorational. The central animating figure of Greek mythology is Zeus. And Zeus is a lead revolutionary. It's almost as if because Zeus led the ultimate revolution, he became the ultimate hero, and thereby he became the ultimate god. Prometheus seems to, at times, have almost as much power as Zeus does. But he's not the ultimate god. Zeus is the ultimate god because Zeus led the revolution. Apollo, at times, seems to rival Zeus in his power. But he is not the ultimate god, because he did not lead a revolution. Now, in Christianity, why is Yahweh the ultimate god? You do have these ideas in the Old Testament, especially, that there are other gods. Now, whether these are projections of mankind or meta-divine spiritual beings is perhaps up to debate. I tend to prefer the former option. But it's interesting because what makes Yahweh Yahweh and what makes Christ Christ? And that's interesting, especially thinking about it in the context of what's happening with Zeus here. Zeus is Zeus because he's the lead revolutionary. Yahweh is Yahweh 
because he is the embodiment of love, because everything good stems and flows and returns back to him. Zeus can be good, but he is not the ultimate good, because he can also fall and also make mistakes. The Greeks may praise Zeus, oh mighty Zeus, oh insightful Zeus, oh wise Zeus. But Zeus still does some rather senseless things. Yahweh, on the other hand, is a greater God than Zeus because everything that is flows from Yahweh. In Exodus 3, it, God describes himself as, I am that I am, tell them that I am sent you. In Greek, Zeus means God. And in English, God means, most of the time, the God of the Bible. So, you have this comparison. Now, there are a lot of similarities between Yahweh and Zeus, and there are a lot of differences, but I think, and I'm of the persuasion, that the differences outweigh the similarities, because those differences mark the differences in the fundamental religions of Greek, ancient Greek religion and then the modern Christian religion and the ancient Judaic religion. The religions are defined by what the people put their trust in. So, we don't have a Zeus-centric model of the universe. We have a Christ-centered model of the universe. And no matter how much the atheists or the skeptics or the, as the New Testament put it, the non-believer will try to deny the influence of Christianity. There is a constant borrowing from this tradition. So, in light of all that, I guess that's what, that's the backdrop of what I plan to talk about tomorrow. And I don't know how much of that will make it into my speech. Um, I definitely want to be looking at Zeus as the revolutionary, Zeus as the center. I don't know if I'll get into this Yahweh stuff. I'll have to, oh, look at the time, like, you know, see how much time I've got. But that's some of the things that I've been thinking about when making this chart in general <coughs> is... You know, what exactly is going on with Zeus being at the top? Because, you know, Zeus doesn't rule everything. He's the god of the heavens and the god of lightning and rain and thunder, etc. But he is the chief god. And so what makes Zeus the chief god? It might be more than what I laid out. probably is. But it's really interesting to me to think about what makes Zeus in charge. And I think that's what it is because there is a lot of emphasis here on revolution. So thanks for watching. And if you have any ideas, leave a comment or get a hold of me some other way because I don't know exactly what to do with this stuff um, except for, well, I guess, you know, one more thing is uh, I'll make another video on this in the future. The 
one of the spirits of America is revolution because America was birthed out of revolution. How similar is ancient Greek society to modern American society and is that good? So that's something that I will hopefully get to in the near future. So again, thanks for watching and leave a comment.